song is always appropriate. I always, it surprises me, though, because that's the one that gets me emotionally more than any other song. So you sneaked up on me with that one. When the soul feels its worth, that's our encounter with Jesus Christ is when the soul feels its worth to God. That's what we're here for. An encounter with our Lord Jesus Christ through the spirit where there is liberty. For there is no real freedom without Jesus Christ. Political independence is not freedom. It's a good thing not to be under the oppressive rule or the tyrannical rule of dictators or governments. But it's not freedom. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free, Jesus said. And that's the truth that is embodied in Jesus, as Ephesians 4.21 says it. And as Jesus himself proclaimed it in John 14.6, I am the truth. There is no freedom, no real freedom without Jesus Christ. Freedom is not political independence. Otherwise, the opponents of Jesus in John 8 would have been free. They said, we are free. Because we are the children of Abraham. That's not freedom. Freedom comes when a person subordinates himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ and lives inside the kingdom of God. There is no freedom without subordination. And the subordination is to the grace of God. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And when we receive our redeemed and ransomed bodies the scripture says we enter into the glorious freedom of the children of God for glory the glory that we will have is actually defined as freedom perfect freedom perfect freedom is when the heart desires to do what God desires to do in the heart freedom therefore is not the liberty to do whatever you want it's the freedom of obedience and of faithfulness in a shared participation with the resurrected Christ. And this is where we enter into the unchained gospel. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, we'll have a text verse. A month ago, I introduced the doctrine of the divine missions on Sunday morning, and I've decided to take Sunday mornings to fan out on that doctrine, divine missions. It's kind of an all-encompassing thing. And it gives us an occasion in Colossians 3.16, let the message about Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. This is how we do that. This is how The word of Christ dwells richly among us. It's by being taught in the scriptures. Regarding the divine missions, years ago, my heart was ignited on fire with this particular doctrine while reading the Triune God Systematics by Bernard Lonergan. On page 483 of that book, he said, The Son was sent so that the Father might be able to love us as he loves his own Son. And the Spirit is sent because the Father does love us as he loves his own Son. Paul's gospel, then, is about a salvific divine invasion. 
a redemptive invasion, a liberating invasion, a transforming invasion of the present evil age. It is an invasion that's intended to rescue, to liberate, and to transform the universal creation. This is the gospel unchained. This is the gospel, the dimensions of which have no limits. It's the love of Christ, his, the depth of his love, the breadth of his love, the width and the length of his love, all measureless dimensions. So Paul's gospel tells of an invasion intended to rescue, to liberate, and to transform the universal creation. This cosmic redemptive invasion occurs in two waves, and they're called divine missions. That's why I'm fanning out. I'm, repet- I'm, I'm entering into repetition and expansion or amplification. The two, vis- two, two divine missions are what our subject is, and I'm fanning out on it. Last week, we got through the first six elements of the Christ event, beginning with what a song today appropriately celebrates, his incarnation. But the first point is there are two divine missions. The divine missions are undertaken by divine persons. A divine mission means that a divine person is sent or commissioned by a person or persons of the divine trinity into human history, into humanity, and into the creation as a whole. The first divine mission God sent his son. The heart of the heart of the Galatian epistle, which is an apocalypse in itself, is Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, that's the fullness of time in which the humanity, once under the destiny born by Adam, was to switch to the destiny born by Deuteros Anthropos, the second man, Christ Jesus. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the power of the law, in order to redeem those under the power of the law. We've been showing in the midweek services that those under the power of the law is all of humanity. Those under the power of the law are those under the power of sin. As 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, and therefore under the power of death. And so the wages of sin, the sin that's passed to the whole human race, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans six twenty three applies to all of humanity on both counts. Because death passed to all mankind. And this coming week I'm also planning in the midweek to get pretty exacting about one of the most magnificent verses in the Bible which we'll touch on briefly today 1 Corinthians 15:22 for just as in Adam all die so in Christ all will be made alive that word just as in the Hebrew or this the Greek text is hosper and it means an exact similitude Just as exactly as one man bore the destiny of all humankind unto death, so just exactly and to the same degree, only more so, a man bears the destiny of the whole human race and, in fact, all of creation unto life. That's the scripture. This is the gospel 
unchained from the tyranny of fundamentalism, so-called, so-called fundamentalism, and released from the bonds of a constricting legalism, which is found, ironically, in churches that bear the title and the name Grace. So then, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. That's divine mission one. In order to redeem those under the power of the law, in order that we would receive the full privilege of legal heirs. And this is something, again, that we've been studying. That's the heart of the heart of Galatians. The first divine mission may be summed up as the Christ event. The Christ event. Christ event has seven major elements. You ought to be getting familiar with these now because I'm repeating this now for a month. The Christ event, also known as Divine Mission One, has seven elements. The first is the incarnation. We've gone over that pretty good. John 1.14, Hebrews 2, 7 to 9. You made him a little lower than the angels for a brief time, and he's now crowned with glory and honor. It is important to recognize that every one of these seven features is saving Just as saving as the death of Christ is the incarnation of Christ. The whole Christ event holds together, hangs together. The second element of the Christ event or the first divine mission was the life and the vicarious obedience. That means Jesus Christ's life from the manger to the cross was a response to God the Father of perfect faithful obedience For all of us, a response to God the Father of perfect, faithful obedience for all of us. And that comes out with Hebrews 5, 7 to 9, in the days of his flesh, the obedience of Christ in 5, 8, leading to eternal salvation to those who obey him, and that those who obey him, as we have been seeing and must be seen more clearly, does not restrict that salvation to believers only. Very important that we understand this. This life of obedience is also found in Romans 5:18 to 19, where that life of obedience is salvific or saving for all humankind, all humankind without exception. Romans 5, 18 to 19, something we will hunker down with again soon. The third element of the Christ event is his life in the flesh culminating, the culmination of that obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. Having taken on the form of a man, the likeness of sinful flesh, Having taken on the form and the vocation of a slave, he became obedient even to the extent of death, even by death, by crucifixion. And so God has also highly exalted him. That's the point where the upward trajectory begins after the downward trajectory is finished. So the third element, his life in the flesh culminates in obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion which is an obedience by which the many, also known as the all, are made righteous, that is, liberated from being under the power of sin. True freedom is liberation from being under the power of sin. As Jesus said, you're not free if you commit sin. If you're under sin, in John eight thirty four and 35, you're not free. And therefore, the Jewish Christians 
they were Christians because they believed in him in John 8.30, began to oppose him immediately. Imagine believing in him and then immediately starting your so-called Christian life by, by an opponents of him, by becoming opponents of him. That's exactly what happened. And that's the case today. There are many more Christians who believe in Jesus and have glowing testimonies who are the enemies of the cross of Christ than you would care to imagine. This, the gospel of Paul largely fixes that problem. It presents to us a vision of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance without which people perish or continue in their Adamic ontology. But today what we have passing as Christianity... And Christianity think it's going to be the salvation of this nation. I saw two shows this morning for five minutes each, Christian TV shows. And they both purported to have the answer for the salvation of the nation. They both had political messages. They both had anti-Islamic messages, radical Islam messages. And they both had a sense that they were prophets. Now, that may be something that people toss around. But Christianity itself is part of the problem. Because it has denied this true gospel. Christianity in itself is often nothing more. And I don't like saying this. Believe me, I don't like saying this. Than a reconfiguration of Adam's living. With an exterior Christian label and a moral label to it. That's not going to save the nation. That's what's pulling the nation down just as fast as radical elements of all religions are. And it's not freedom. What is needed is freedom from the apocalyptic power of sin and the fear of death and principalities and powers which have been vanquished through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then I could get preaching quite a bit. I don't want to be hung in the public square prematurely so I will move on doctrinally speaking his life in the flesh then is the third element and that was a life of obedience that culminated in death the fourth then is burial his burial just as important to our saving our salvation because it says we were buried with him by baptism that is baptism into his death by the spirit in Romans 6, 4. Resurrection is the fifth. This de- deserves a lot more attention than I'm going to give it today. But in Romans 1, 4, the scripture speaks of God declaring Jesus Christ of the seed of David to be his everlasting eternal son by raising him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Matthew 20, verse 19 Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, when Paul said, according to the scriptures, Christ was raised the third day. He's referring to passages like Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, and Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. But it also says we were raised with him, raised up together with him. In fact, Colossians 2, 12 captures both burial and resurrection, and therefore hits the point where the downward trajectory of Jesus Christ Starts an upward movement, resurrection. So in Colossians 2.12, we're right here. We have been buried along with him by being baptized. And that, I believe, means baptized by the Spirit into Christ. And in him, you were also raised up 
by God's faithfulness. Please note that because your translation 10 to 1 doesn't say it this way. Colossians 2.12. Raised up by God's faithfulness that was in action when he raised Jesus from the dead. By God's faithfulness which was in action when he raised Jesus from the dead. Last week, we spent no little time on the sixth element, elevation, Jesus Christ's ascension. And we went to Psalm 68 for that. Today, we'd have to go to Psalm 110. I don't know if you'll get there or not. Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. 110.1 and 8.6. Two Psalms that have probably hundreds of verses in the New Testament as an exegesis of those two Psalms. The elevation, then, I would say, is the sixth element. His his elevation coupled with his descent, so that as the Scripture says in Ephesians 4, 8, this is why the Scripture says, and he's talking about Psalm 68, 18, he ascended to the height, leading captive a host of captives, or captivity itself. He gave gifts to mankind. Now, what does he ascended infer except that he first descended to the lower regions that is to the earth he who descended also ascended high above all high above all in order that he might fill up everything tapanta means every single thing that he might fill up every single thing universally with himself. That's Ephesians 4, 9, and 10. That goes along with Paul speaking of the eternal purpose of God or the purpose that was pre-temporal when God the Father willed to recapitulate everything in his Son. Tapanta, once again, every single thing in his Son. Colossians 1.20 makes it very clear that every single thing includes angelic principalities and powers, including those who oppose themselves against God, and all of humanity, including and especially rebellious humanity. There's one passage in Psalm 68.18 that's neglected that shouldn't be, because it says when he gave gifts to men, he gave it to those who were rebellious, even to the rebellious He gave the gift of apostleship and the master building or architecture of the body of Christ to the worst sinner that ever lived, the Apostle Paul. That's the grace of God. That's why I say it's better called Paul, because he was one of the rebellious to whom God gifted the greatest cybernetic gift in the church age, cybernetic meaning communicative gift. So, seventh, and I didn't hit this too hard last week, The seventh is enthronement, the enthronement of Christ, part of the Christ event, part of the saving event of the divine mission, enthronement as Lord over all of creation, as Revelation 4 and 5 teaches, as Lord over all humanity, over all the ages or history in Ephesians 3.11, 1 Timothy 1.17, over all the nations, another way of saying all, the, all of humanity in Revelation 15, 4, relating back to Psalm twenty two twenty seven, And thankfully, this is something we'll get to when we get to the Christian life, we were seated together with him. That means enthroned where once the Elohim convened, the Elohim that God judged 
and put aside in Psalm 82, 6 and 7, replaced by that proleptic humanity called the church, the body of Christ, joined to Christ. So, we were seated with him together, says Ephesians 2, 6, after being elevated with him in 2, 5, made alive together with him. To be made alive in Christ is to be made alive with his life, not just made alive animated as if something simply has animation. We are made alive when we're made alive in Christ. We are made alive with Christ's life. Everything, without exception, is destined to live with the life of Jesus Christ. And it begins with Paul. In one sense, I was crucified with Christ, he said. Nevertheless, I live. And yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said that, but we can all say that, thankfully. Now, at the heart and at the climax of Rev the Book, which we have studied, and I'm still wrapping my arms around that study, at the heart and at the climax of Rev the Book is an enthroned lamb. I've said before, you could take John's Gospel and you could take Rev the Book together, Revelation together, and entitle it, Look, There's the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. It begins in John 1.29 when Jesus is seen by John the baptizer in the presence of his disciples, including an anonymous disciple named the beloved disciple. He said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the baptizer understood the universality of the saving significance of the man Jesus, the Lamb of God. He will take away the sinfulness of the cosmos. He will, in other words, enact a cosmic redemption. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus isn't just for us. It isn't just for the church. It's for all of humankind in all of its times. It's for all of human history to redeem it from its cycle of ups and downs and progress and decline. It is for all of creation who groans right now in screaming agony, as it were, to be relieved and to be liberated from its present slavery to corruption. And Paul says, we groan with it. There are people today, environmentalists and others, who want to be one with the universe. Well, we are. We have a solidarity with the universe because we groan together with it in the earnest expectation of the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's freedom. The eschatological freedom to come is the glory of God to come. At the heart and climax of Rev, the book is an enthroned lamb. Revelation 3.21, Jesus, the Son of Man, said, I will grant the victor to sit with me in my throne. Just as I became victorious and sat with my Father in his throne. The universal worshipful recognition of Jesus Christ's enthronement is recorded in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. The translation I gave to you is this, in Revelation 5, 11, Then I saw and heard the voice of many angels in a circle around the throne, and the created living beings and the presbyters, or elders, their number was 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. 
And they all shouted with a loud voice, The lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and blessedness. And listen to verse 13 of Revelation 5. And I heard all of creation. I heard all of creation. That which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and every being that is in them say blessedness and honor and glory and sovereignty to the enthroned one and to the lamb for the ages of ages. Amen. How about Revelation eleven fifteen? the message of the two witnesses, which is the ongoing testimony of the church in this present age in which Messiah has invaded the evil age. Revelation eleven fifteen at the flourish of the trumpet sounded by the seventh angel. Voices in heaven shouted, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And Revelation 15, 1, I saw another sign in heaven, John said, a great and wonder-creating one. Seven angels having the seven last plagues. Last, because with them the wrath of God is completed. And I saw a glass-like sea mixed with fire and those who conquered the beast and his image and the number of his name. They were standing upon the glass-like sea holding harps issued to them by God. They were singing the song of Moses, the willing slave of God, and the song of the Lamb. The lyric goes like this. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, ruler of all. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. Because all the nations will come and worship in your presence. Because your righteous acts are clearly revealed. Your righteous acts are clearly revealed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because therein the righteousness of God is revealed. And that word revealed is apocalypto, apocalyptically revealed, meaning that the saving act of God's righteousness in Christ is universally saving. It is universally conquering of opposing powers. It is universally liberating and transformative. And God even transforms the evil into the supreme good. The judgment on evil goes further than destruction. It goes into transformation by the grace of God. God, if you know him, you know this in the innermost heart that it's true. And don't worry, if you don't know him, he knows you. And that's more important, as Galatians 4, 8, 9 says. Now, as we move into the next phase, again, Lonergan, this came to my mind this week. The Triune God Systematics, this time page 491. And that's not really that. It's probably really more like 245 because half of the book is in Latin. And I didn't read that half. I tried. Forget about it. But he said in Systematics on the Triune God, he said, although each mission, that's each divine mission, has the same ultimate end, listen carefully, which is the heavenly city to the glory of the Father. The first mission is that of the Son for the reconciliation of all human persons to God the Father. 
And the consequent mission of the Spirit is to each one of the just who have been reconciled. That's what goes on in church, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the mission of the Spirit to the just who have been reconciled to God. Revelation, again, 21, speaking of that heavenly city, which is the goal of both missions, Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in it, that's the heavenly city, for the Lord God, the ruler of all, and the Lamb is its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to give its light, for the glory of God illuminates it. And listen carefully, its lamp is the Lamb. Its lamp is the Lamb. That's what's happening with us right now. The lamp of this city is the lamb. The vision of a saving and all saving savior is the vision without which people, including Christians, especially Christians are perishing. Perishing doesn't mean going to hell. It means staying under the oppressive demands made by lust. And lust doesn't mean sexual lust. Lust means the desire in man to vaunt himself against his creator and to vaunt himself against his neighbor. And that's something we'll be coming up to very soon to describe that in a doctrine that I'm not involved with today called homardiology or the doctrine of sin. Now, a lot of the people that we call fundies that are self-proclaimed fundamentalists think we don't preach enough about sin. But let me tell them right today, the sin we preach about will indict you to the wall because it is, as Isaiah said, you rulers of Sodom was a message to the leaders in Jerusalem and Sodom and Egypt in Revelation 11.8 was Jerusalem at the time. So. Speaking of that city, the lamp is the lamb, and the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will carry their glory into it, and each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there, and they will admit the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing may enter it into it that's profane, no one who does, not what, who does what is vile and false. But only those who are registered in the book of life of the Lamb. We express that as all are in the book of life of the Lamb because in Christ, all will be made alive. There are no profane because the profane will have been transformed. Revelation 22.1, finally, the angel of Jesus showed me the river of the water of life, radiant as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. The throne of the Father is the throne of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, flowing in the middle of the broad way of the city and on each side of the river, the species of tree called the tree of life, bearing 12 fruits, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of that species of tree are for the service of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb are in it. And his willing slaves will serve him. Now, the enthronement of the lamb presupposes or takes as a fact, a given fact already, his incarnation, which we celebrated by song and hymn and spiritual song this morning, as we are told to do in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19. 
That means everyone sings. And if you're as bad as I am singing, you can make a melody in your heart to the Lord. Thank God for that. Got out of another tough one. Reminds me of, well, I won't get into that today. But the enthronement of the Lamb presupposes his incarnation, his life of vicarious obedience, the culmination of that obedience in death by crucifixion. All of these are presupposed by the enthroned Lamb. In Revelation 5, 6, the Lamb, when he's first seen by John, standing between the enthroned God because he's ready to ascend the steps to that throne. And he stands between the enthroned father and the four living beings representative of all creation. And he stands in the midst of the 24 presbyters because he's truly a human being. This lamb appeared to have been slaughtered. He appeared to have been slaughtered. This means his death was taken as a fact, it was clear in the demonstration that he bore in his resurrection the marks of his crucifixion, the marks of his passion. This means that his death was taken as a fact as well as his resurrection, for John saw him standing. This is the same John that saw Jesus Christ crucified and heard him speak, Tetelestai. This is the same John who saw him standing in resurrection in John 20 and who talked about the beach scene in John 21. And so seeing the lamb who had been slaughtered but is standing means that his death was taken as a fact as well as his resurrection, his burial, and on the third day, his resurrection. Then 40 days after that, his elevation, he was caught up in the sight of his disciples and they saw him go heavenward. The enthronement of the lamb, and I'm moving into the third gear now, the enthronement of the lamb who occupies the same throne as God the Father is the message, if not the central message of Revelation. It's fitting that the book in the canonical order of the New Testament would emphasize the seventh element of the divine mission of the Son, that being his enthronement. I'll say that again. It's fitting that the last book in the canonical order of the New Testament emphasizes the seventh element of the first divine mission. It makes me think that those who put the canonical order of the books together knew what they were doing. It's fitting that the final book in the canonical order, the order of the canon of the New Testament, would emphasize the final element of the first divine mission, that being the enthronement of Christ, the Lamb, the sacrificed Lamb, the Paschal Lamb, as we'll see. Of course, the second divine mission is implicated here because from the throne of God and from the Lamb proceeds the river of the water of life. That river of the water of life goes everywhere. It's a universal image. It's an image of the Holy Spirit who, again, in Revelation 5, 6, is shown as the seven spirits of God going into all the earth. The universality of the mission of the spirit is clear. I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. What the spirit is, is the spirit of faith. What the spirit pours out is faith. What the spirit implicates, what the spirit elicits is faith. 
And we know that all humanity will express a confession of faith as all angelic beings will in the final explosive public proclamation that Yahweh is Yeshua. That's a confession of faith. It is a confession of faith in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is a, it is a confession of faith. It is made by every mouth, every tongue, whether under the earth, above the earth, or on the earth. Accompanied by the genuflection of every knee, which ought to give some of us some expectation, because perhaps as we get older, we can't genuflect. But one day we will genuflect again easily, because we will have brand new, incorruptible, immortal, human bodies. That's my hope. Don't apologize for it either. I'm hoping for that. Even though I'm still a perfect specimen physically. (laughs) See, I got some laughs. I'll tell you what, I know how to get laughs. Now, the second divine mission is implicated here as it is in Galatians 4, 6. As we'll see. Because the river of the water of life symbolizes the Holy Spirit's divine mission, which is rooted in the procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. And we've seen that by passive spiration. I won't get into that today. Here's the question for the fourth gear. Does Paul portray in his epistles the vision of the enthroned Lamb? Does Paul also portray, as John did in John and in Revelation, as well as in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, does Paul portray or paint a picture, as he puts it in Galatians 3.1, in his epistles, the vision of an enthroned lamb like Revelation? The answer to this question is definitely yes. Though in Paul, the enthroned lamb at first is not quite as visible as in Rev the book. And so we'll begin the documentation of the enthroned lamb and Paul by considering 1 Corinthians 5. So I asked you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. In the context of church discipline, which is the subject in generally speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the context of church discipline, And on the occasion of the temporary expulsion of an egregiously errant member of the assembly. And all of Paul's epistles come forth from some exigency, some emergency, some crisis, something he has to deal with. In 1 Corinthians 5, it's the expulsion of an egregiously errant brother. Not with the intention of destruction of him, but with a view to his restoration. That's the point of the, so in the context of church discipline and the occasion of the temporary expulsion of an egregiously errant member of the assembly, and this is not often caught, with an allusion to Exodus chapter 12 about the institution of the first Passover with eight mentions of the Lamb. Paul alludes to Exodus 12. Before he mentions the lamb. But in Exodus 12 there are eight mentions of the lamb. In Exodus 12 he speaks of the first Passover Seder. 
and he speaks of the feast of unleavened bread, a seven day celebration following the Passover. And he likens that to what's going on in the church. And this I will liken again. I will liken further to what's going on in the church today. And what should go on under the ministry of the word. But what doesn't always go on. Exodus 12. I just want to mention this first of all. That in 12.15 for example it says you must eat unleavened bread. That's bread without yeast for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. And that's what's happening in the sense that Paul recognizes the church as the Israel of God. So he alludes to this. This is what he's thinking. You say, how do you know? I called him. I better call Paul. He's thinking this because in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, clean out the old, and the word is paleo, paleon, paleon in the Greek. Clean out the old leaven. Old leaven here is P-A-L-A-I-O, oh, make that A-N, palion. We get the word paleo from that. Paleo man, the first man, the first man, Adam. The Adamic ontology is what he's talking about here. This word is also used for the old man in Colossians 3.9 and Ephesians 4.22 that we are to put off. That's what we would call Adamic ontology because we're now in Christ. So clean out the old leaven in order to be afresh. And the word there is neon where we get the word neon. Neon, afresh or new batch of dough. He's talking, of course, metaphorically here. Just as you are already unleavened. I love that. I love what he says here. Clean out the old leaven that you might be a fresh lump of dough just as you already are unleavened. Become what you are. You already are. So become what you are. And I don't want to take that just as a motto because there's more complexity than meets the eye there. But look what he says next. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb. Pascha means Passover Lamb. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been killed, has been sacrificed. He's referring back to the instructions that the people in Goshen, the ghetto of the Jews in Egypt, were told what to do. Kill the lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and when the angel of death comes, he's going to pass over that house, and you're going to be exempt from the plague of death. Inside, though, you're to roast the lamb with bitter herbs, and you are to eat the lamb. This is what Jesus was referring to in Capernaum in the synagogue when he spoke on the manna midrash, and he said, unless you eat my flesh, you have no life in you. He was referring to Exodus 12, as Paul was here. Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Where have we seen that before? Revelation 5, 6, and I saw a little lamb as if he had been slaughtered. But he's standing. He's in resurrection. So again, Jesus uses the same allusion to Exodus 12. It's worth reading that whole chapter on your own sometime. During his manna midrash, or his sermon on the bread 
called the manna. In John 6, he said in 51 of John 6, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will have the life now that is that of the coming age. Moreover, the bread that I will give on behalf of the life of the world. Listen to that one. The life, the bread that I will give on behalf of the life of the world is my flesh. The incarnation is saving for the whole world. That's why when Thomas Torrance was asked when he was saved, someone said, when were you saved? He said, when Jesus was born of a virgin. And that's true. That's true. You say, can you demonstrate it? Absolutely. Say, will you do it today? No. But it's beginning to be done. And then in verse 52, the Jews, and again, this is an ironic title. This doesn't speak of the Jews as a people, but a certain segment of people that claim the title of the Jews, which is an, a lofty title, which they were not worthy of claiming. So they were really opponents of his. So then we'll say his Jewish opponents began disputing with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Therefore, Jesus said to them, I'm telling you most assuredly, he, gets, he, he doubles down on him now. He doesn't just talk about his flesh. Now he's going to talk about drinking his blood on top of it. Talk about tsh, tsh, double down. I'm telling you most assuredly, if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. You say, but we're living. Yeah, you say you're free. But are you free? Or was Jim Morrison right that fateful day? Never mind. He said to his audience, you're all a bunch of slaves. Now, in this remarkably complex passage, Jesus identifies himself as the Paschal Lamb. That's what he's saying. I'm the Lamb. You eat the flesh of the Lamb, I'm the Lamb. That's all he was saying. And you appropriate the meaning of my death. You participate. To drink my blood is to participate in my death. Salvation is participation in Jesus Christ. It's being grafted onto his downward trajectory into death and grafted onto his upward trajectory in life and enthronement and reigning. We reign in life by one Jesus Christ. We reign in life. By one Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The gospel unchained. In this remarkably complex passage, Jesus identifies himself as the paschal lamb whose flesh is to be eaten. Notice Exodus 12:8. And let your food that night be the flesh of the lamb. Let your food that night, and this is the night. This is the night. This is the time when the hour of darkness has another hour, another opportunity, another shot at the people of God. In this night, make sure your food is the Lamb of God, the Word of God richly dwelling in your hearts. Now is the time. In Exodus 12, let your food that night be the flesh of the Lamb, cooked with fire in the oven, representing the roasting fire of judgment in Jesus Christ's death, together with unleavened bread, together with unleavened bread, bread minus the yeast, and bitter-tasting plants. 
of the law of the cross requires that we remain in the stigma of the cross and suffer together with him if we're going to reign together with him in resurrection. Bitter herbs. Life gets bitter sometimes, but it doesn't mean you have to. Bitterness is the great sin of our nation. People in the political sphere are suckers because they're drawn into an irrational hatred and vitriol and bitterness that's self-destructive of themselves. And this is tearing the nation apart because, you see, the real problem in the nation isn't this political figure against these political people. It is a force which is trying to destroy the nation by pitting the nation against itself, which has every potential of creating a civil war in which millions will die by the hands of their kin. That's the end game of principalities and powers who have been stripped of their might and power and stripped of their plans. They're being revealed now through the word. So there's a fifth gear in this car. We're off road now though, or outside the camp in closing. Therefore in the fifth gear, Paul likens the present messianic age to the celebration of the feast of unleavened bread which, of course, presupposes the death of the Passover lamb. In that the Christian life is a celebration of Christ, which requires the putting off of the Adamic ontology. Put off the Adamic ontology. What does he mean? Look at verse 8. So, since our Paschal lamb has been slaughtered, which assumes his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement. Let us celebrate the feast. That's live the Christian life. Not with the old yeast. That's the old Adamic ontology, the old man. And not with the leaven of ill will and maliciousness. They had just expelled a person from their midst. They are not to think evil of this person, to think maliciously of this person, or to judge this person, because they're to eat this bread unleavened. We're not to have ill will toward anyone. Love is the, the willing of the good toward others. And so we will the good toward others. We love all mankind. We will the good for all mankind. In First Thessalonians 3.12. So let us celebrate the feast, not with the old yeast the Adamic ontology, and not with the leaven of ill will and maliciousness, but with purity and reality. You see what he's saying here? Here's the picture of the slaughtered lamb. Here's the vision of Christ and his universally saving significance. Now let's live in the light of that by partaking of the feast of unleavened bread. The Christian life, again, let me say it again, this defines the Christian life. It's a celebration of Christ which requires the putting off of Adamic ontology, and that includes dressing up your best self. In Adam. So as there was to be no leaven, neither was there to be any malice toward the expelled member whose restoration was expected. The whole view of that was the 
restoration, either in this life or on the day of the Lord, as he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. It is well established in any case that Paul identifies Jesus Christ as the Paschal Lamb who has been killed or sacrificed just as both the gospel and the apocalypse of John have done. So the answer again is yes. Does Paul have a vision of the enthronement of the Lamb? Yes. But what about his enthronement specifically? Now we go to 1 Corinthians 15, and this will set, set us on a path that we will pioneer together. 1 Corinthians 15. Does this Lamb have an enthronement? But now Christ, he says in verse 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ. Now let's go right back to 5, 7. Christ, our Paschal Lamb. Can we call him still our Paschal Lamb? As 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, I think we can. In fact, Paul holds that thought till now. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been resurrected from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means died. Jesus had to do that with his disciples. What do you mean she's asleep? What do you mean by that metaphor, she's asleep? He said, she's dead. And when you're really, really dead, that glorifies God because when he makes you alive from the really, really dead, that's really, really something. So this is why Christ is called the firstborn from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he's called the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1, 18 and Revelation 1, 5. Same thing as firstfruits from the dead or from those who slept. The resurrection of Jesus is always takes as a fact his death and burial, which along with his resurrection are brought out in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. We're going to have to hit that midweek as basic features of the traditional gospel that was handed down to Paul. Paul's gospel went a lot further than the traditional gospel. The traditional gospel says Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Paul said Christ died for our sins in order to liberate us from this present evil age. That's Paul's additional revelation given to him by God. But let's just go for this very briefly, so I'll let you go to celebrate your freedom. Remember what it is. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. We're talking about a man who is the bearer of the destiny of all humankind. Death came through a man. Romans 5.12, through one man's trespass, death came to all mankind, all the world. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. The man through whom resurrection came is a divine person sent on a divine mission, part of which is to become a human being. So here we're speaking of the Son of Man, who is the man from heaven, Paul calls him, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man who gave his life as a ransom for all mankind. The first divine mission was that of the Son of God, who assumed a human nature by incarnation. That's the first feature of the Christ event, which we celebrated, thankfully, in the song service. The universal impact of this mission is explicitly stated in verse 22. For just as... In Adam, 
all without exception die. So, just so, in the same way, also in Christ, all without exception will be made alive. I'm going to show this week, I hope, translations that in the English actually butcher this so they eliminate the emphasis on all and even more importantly they eliminate the emphasis on Christ with an attempt to make the particular translation palatable to the modern ear. I call it palatable mendacity. That's what the whole world is based on. That's what advertisement is largely based on. Palatable mendacity. That means a lie that tastes good. But each in his own division. Christ the first fruits, even then those who belong to Christ. I'm going to iron this out in the future. In his parousia. Then the telos division, or the last division, which is the final resurrection when he hands over... the kingdom to God the Father whenever he will have brought to nothing all opposing rule and authority and power that includes sin death the flesh all Adamic and demonic ontology including oppressive human governments for he here's verse 25 this is the allusion to Psalm 110.1 for he Christ the first fruits must reign until all his enemies are placed beneath his feet. Does Paul present an image of a lamb in ruling enthronement over all? I think he does. It's right here. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five is a loud echo of Psalm 110, a psalm of David. Yahweh said to my Lord. David had a vision of Yahweh the Father speaking to his Lord, Jesus Christ. Yahweh said to my Lord in this vision, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Who's reigning here? The Son of God, the resurrected Christ. Who is he? The Paschal Lamb who took away the sin of the world. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We know when to stop. We thank you for the freedom that you've given to us in Christ Jesus, for it was for freedom that Christ liberated us. This freedom is far greater and far wider, far deeper and far broader than any kind of freedom that was imagined by our forefathers, even in the writing of the Declaration of Political Independence. Today we declare our independence from sin, from death, from principalities and powers, from fear, For we have been adopted as sons and given a spirit not to fear again, but a spirit of liberation and freedom in Christ. So may we go forth from here enjoying the freedom that's real freedom. And may we experience the freedom that is only experienced where the spirit of the Lord is. There's that freedom. 